down to the white meat. Hello and welcome to another episode of Down to the White Meat, the podcast. I am your co-host, C. Anderson, a licensed therapist, here with my lovely co-host, Nakia Lowry. Nakia, say hey to the people. Hey, people. (laughs) Today, folks, we are getting into something that is so important in our collective, the way that Black people, Black faces, Black stories are told and portrayed in the media. We have a very special guest from the inside who is working diligently to change the narrative. Her name is Georgia Ford, and she is an Emmy award, an Emmy nominated uh, journalist who is making it her mission and her goal to get our stories told the right way. Georgia, welcome and say hey to the people. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. We're so delighted to have you today to speak to these issues. Um, So if you could, Georgia, in your own words, tell our followers and listeners who you are, what you do and why you do it. So I am an independent journalist and media producer, storyteller, and I have been focused on changing the narrative through visual stories probably for the last two years. And that purpose was birthed after, you know, 10 years of working in mainstream media and just seeing how the media has been used as a vehicle pretty much since its inception to portray our community negatively. And so I just recognized that there was a huge need for uh, counter narratives, for new narratives that really show the essence of our culture and who we are. And uh, that doesn't focus on the negative, you know, that that really uh, goes deep and focuses on the resilience and the strength and the talent that is, uh, that we know to be true in our community. Mm, right. You said something important. You said the talent, the strength, um, the oneness that we know, right, from our experiences from the inside, but it very rarely is casted out for other people to see. What barriers do you think we face? and getting our stories, our truth told? Well, I think that there are a lot of barriers. Uh, The biggest one being that the legacy, the heritage uh, outlets um, are are predominantly white owned. And so they have this built-in audience that usually spans millions and sometimes spans globally that we are up against. And so if they're constantly amplifying a narrative of us that dehumanizes us, that depicts us as criminals, that depicts us as poor, uh, less than, right? Uh, How then do independent journalists like myself who, who don't have the resources, who don't have the reach, but I am telling the stories that show how how dynamic we are. How can I compete with that? And so I think Mm -hmm. a big barrier is that a lot of the uh, heritage stations, networks 
are uh, white led, white owned. Mm -hmm. And so even when you see things like Black Information Network, it's a new network or radio network that has been created to uh, provide black news to contextualize black issues. Mm -hmm. But let's be real. Black Information Network is owned by Clear Channel, which mm -hmm. also owns mm -hmm. iHeartRadio. Yes. And it's basically the McDonald's of of radio stations. They, they have stations and billboards all across this country. Mm -hmm. And so when the rubber meets the road and we have to get real about what's happening in our community, at the end of the day, they have the power to silence us. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that that's what they're set out to do. And I'm not saying that they would compromise their integrity. But I am saying as a person who has worked in mainstream media, who has had their voice silenced, who uh, stands on the, the shoulders of the black women who have anchored before me, who have said that their voices were silenced. I know how the game works. And so what concerns me about things like Black Information Network popping up is great mm -hmm. that they're committed to telling our stories and our perspective, but it's still a white-led organization. Mm. Wow, wow. Um, something that you just said, Georgia, it made me remember uh, back before BET was sold to Viacom. I think it was around 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, first of all, watching BET and getting information that I looked forward to, like the show Teen Summit, which was yes. amazing as, as a teenager growing up in the city. They talked about things that were important to me, to the people that I, you know, that looked like me. Um, and they also had a, a news, a news show. Right. But I remember when BET was sold or acquired by Viacom, this big parent, you know, non-black owned company that the news station was one of the first shows to be phased out, yeah. to be phased out. And I was just like, Hmm, well, you know, where do we go? you know, where do we go now? But it, there wasn't a big, uh, like to do about it. Nobody really talked about it. Uh, people didn't protest it. So do you feel like black people, like we desire to, to have places and spaces that belong to us that really share and care about who we are, or are we in a place where we're just kind of like, you know, where we, we get it where we can and we find it where we do. I think that there is a desire uh, for us to, to have information. Um, but I, I think, you know, when you look at BT black information, or um, now I'm thinking of the other network, black entertainment television, mm -hmm. it, it was definitely entertainment driven. And so um it, it may not have been the appropriate platform, but my question is that why can't Viacom branch out and have something like Black Information Network, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, But to your point, you know, just about like the consumerism of, of media, it definitely, you know, when the ratings aren't there, any media entity is going to question what, you know, whether or not they should keep that type of programming. And so we, we absolutely, as a community, we have to hold ourselves accountable about the things that we consume because ratings drive what these networks are going to invest in. And so if we're not consuming the media that portrays us the, 
in a, in a true light, in, in a light that we feel truly reflects who we are. If we're not consuming it, if we're not watching it, sharing it, commenting on it, mm. then eventually the business of media is going to drive it out. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I would like to believe that we could successfully have a, a black news driven television network and that it would be successful. I, I would love to believe that. I do believe that. Um, yeah. But on uh, on the other hand, you know, we know a lot of times in our community, the stuff that goes viral is not always the stuff that portrays us in in the best light. I'm glad you said that, Georgia, because that was going to be my question to you was um, your view on how much of this is accountability on our part. Um, even just in the image of black entertainment television and, you know, understanding behind the scenes of who is really the driving force behind the stories, behind what hits our screen and all of that. The, I, I feel like the only way for us to change that narrative is for us to not buy into it, not to watch it, not to, you know, not to promote it, not to share it, what, just as you stated. Um, Is there any, I mean, I think that also perhaps some of it is ignorance too, is not really being aware of who's behind some of these platforms. Do you think that plays a factor in for any, you know, significant population within our culture? Absolutely. When you look at credits at the end of a show, think about how many names you see. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a predominantly black show, let's just take, you know, love and hip hop for an example or Real Housewives of Atlanta shows that have historically not portrayed black women as sophisticated, as educated, as professional or any really positive in any positive way. Right. Mm -hmm. You take these shows. If you actually got to see the faces of the people who were writing those shows, producing those shows, editing those shows, and Mm. you realize that it was 90 percent white men, Mm. your perception of the authenticity of the content you were consuming be the same. It would absolutely change. Absolutely. 100%. I think a lot of times we look at the screen and and if we see all Black faces, we go, oh, this is a Black show. But the example that you just gave, and as you were describing it, I'm getting vivid pictures of, you know, people in a sound booth or people in 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 an editing room, Um, the cameramen, the, the, the producers, the PAs, the people who are actually uh, making it run, recording it and, and, and scripting it to some extent, it's very minstrel-like, very minstrel-like. Absolutely. And, and not to say that those shows are, I don't know the statistics of those shows, but it was an easy example to throw out there mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. say, like, when we are consuming media, we don't really know who's working behind the scenes like media. Mm-hmm. The nature of media is 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 very, you know, consumer driven and it, it's not very transparent. Um, in terms of who's creating it. A lot of times we don't find out until afterwards 
um, you know, whether it's a black person that's actually behind a show or a movie that mm-hmm. we really enjoy. And so, you know, we we do have to be more conscious. And I've heard so many stories of like writers who mm-hmm. have said that they had to walk off set. They had to quit some of the best opportunities of their lives because they felt like not only were they, they being tokenized as a black wow. man or, or woman, but that they were being used to perpetuate um, negative stereotypes. And we, we've heard that from actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, was that's that right. I got handed this script. It was going to be the biggest movie of my life. And after reading how they wanted me to fit into this negative stereotype of a black woman or a black man, I had to turn down the role, you know. Oh. But unfortunately, there are people in our community who will say yes to those opportunities or who financially don't have any other option but yeah. to say yes to those opportunities. Wow. That's that's real. That's that's very real. Um, the fact that you know there are some people in the industry they got to eat. Yep. It's that simple. They got to eat. Um, it reminds me of uh, you know coming to America. The, the the sequel to Coming to America um, was released Friday. I enjoyed it. Um, there's a lot of dissension around the film. I've, I've seen mostly positive, but there are people saying, you know, it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. But the thing that I noticed about the film, number one is Eddie Murphy was very intentional in the way that he brought the sequel about. He mm-hmm. filmed it at a black owned studio, right? Tyler Perry studios. They also used, uh, a black set, which was Rick Ross's um, home for the interior. He brought together actors who we have not seen in decades um, and put them back on the screen. He hired thousands. I think that the, the article I read said about 6,000 people had their hands in this project to make it come you know, to, to fruition. Um, black costume designers. Um, you had Salt and Pepper. You had in Vogue, you know, in this film. Um, other actors who we hadn't seen in a while. Um, images of black people that were positive, um, powerful. That uh, you know, although they, you know, we know it wasn't shot in Africa, but still, really vivid, beautiful um, pictures of of Africa, but people still, people still complain. Well, it wasn't as funny or as raunchy as um, the, uh, the initial film. And it just kind of, it, it made me wonder, like, are we being programmed to reject things that are more positive than what we are used to seeing. I think some people call it um, like move, like a black trauma porn, a black, um, yeah, I think trauma porn is what people are calling it. Like movies about slavery, movies, uh, movies about us being killed, yeah. movies about police brutality, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's effect on the psyche. So when I look at people's complaints about coming to America, the sequel, I feel like I'm seeing some of that 
those neural pathways that have been purposely created to keep us in this space of watching movies that are traumatic to Black people. There was a saying when I worked in news, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. And the reason being is because of ratings, you know, and so it, it goes back to us being conscious of what we're consuming and mm. making intentional decisions to watch, like, comment, share, tune in, turn on, you know, all, buy, advertise, mm. subscribe to platforms, movies, news, newspapers, podcasts that portray us how we deserve to be portrayed in in an authentic way. And no, we're not a perfect people. Obviously, there are negative things that happen in in our community. But, you know, there's way more to us than the way that a lot of these white led Um, institutions have have tried to portray us. So, you know, and to your point, are we being programmed? We absolutely should be asking ourselves that question. Um, It's so interesting to see how the world has shifted, especially being based out of the Twin Cities. I'm from St. Paul. Minneapolis is right over the river, 10 minutes away. You know, so I'm very familiar with the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed and seeing how that event has totally shifted the the world's perception of uh, the criminal justice system and uh, the way it has been designed to oppress black people, kill black people. Right. People have they've uh, awoken to that. People mm-hmm. are not looking at uh, police killings anymore as such a controversial issue, but more of a human rights issue mm-hmm. and the systematic racism that's embedded in it. Right. And so for me being in media, I am wondering when are we as a community, as uh, really as, as the world, like it is a global issue too. When are we going to look at the, the pandemic of, of, of the media coverage and, and the way that it has been um, commercialized and it's ratings driven I mean, you shouldn't stop producing positive content because mm-hmm. nobody watches it. Right. You know, like that it's sh- you shouldn't, you know, be happy that somebody got killed because now you have a bloody story to lead your newscast and it's better for your ratings. Right. Like when you're driven by that type of motivation, you're you're profiting off of off of trauma and genocide mm-hmm. and just, you know, negative things. So I think media reform and narrative justice are mm-hmm. two issues that I hope really come to the forefront in in the next few years, because uh, they have been detrimental, not only to our, I believe, economic prosperity, um, but just even in the way that we view ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Can we talk a bit more about um, the just the psychology behind media, like, you know, key phrases, if there's anything, I mean, raising awareness so that we can start to be more intentional and conscious in in the way that we're digesting this information and processing it. Um, Yeah. And when you say key phrases, do you have any in mind? 
like, for example, kind of what C said, where we're, you know, the, the, the black boys are, are portrayed as men automatically. It's not, you know, to kind of take away from that uh, innocence, if you will, or, you know, where in, in police brutality situations where they're automatically looking at, you know, putting on the forefront that victim's criminal record, you know, just things oh, like that. Great, great. I'm so glad you said that. You said victims, criminal record. But I guarantee you, when you watch the news, they never call him a victim. I know. Mm. Yes. I'm glad that I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad that Nakia brought that that point up because uh, the story when we were just kind of preparing for this episode, the story that I was referring to uh, was one that if I had not followed um, Sean King, I wouldn't have heard about the story. Um, there was a man named Joseph Bassard, and Sean King posted about a week ago uh, the story that this man had just, well, two weeks ago, that this man in the last 24 hours had gunned down uh, three Black teenagers. The three gentlemen were uh, 18, 18, and 19. And so when I went to actually search for news coverage of Joseph Bassard and what had happened, number one, the story was very difficult for me to find. The other part that I noticed is that um, this, this man, this, this murderer, uh, Joseph Bassard, was uh, referred to as a suspect, right? So there's still suspicion around whether or not he did this, what happened, you know, what, uh, what the circumstances were. And then the three teenagers, and I have a daughter who's 20 and I still consider her, you know, a kid <laughs> on some level. She's not this fully grown, developed adult woman right, walking in the I world. Have males. I feel the same way. My son's right. <laughs> uh, exactly. Right. And so, but the, the, those three, those three teenagers were, refer, were, were referred to as men. Mm. Fort mm. Wayne, Fort Wayne man charged with killing two men, a third wounded. Gas station triple shooting hate crime question mark. Right. Like I was just very disturbed that for the narrative that Sean King was able to tell the way that he told the story was devastating that these three young men stopped at the gas station, got out this, the man, uh, Joseph Bassar got out as well. They're in the store. Witnesses said that he just kind of had a chip on his shoulder. He was really kind of rude. Um, I guess that they were young, kind of having, you know, loud, having fun, joking around where they're getting gas and maybe an argument started. And then they got into their vehicles to leave and he followed them and chased, chased them off the road, shooting at them into a ditch shooting and wounding all of them. Two of them died immediately at the scene and one was later taken to the hospital and he since died from his injuries. But I have not seen, whether on social media or my television, a national story about this crime. How does that continue to happen when we have so much access to stories and what is going on in the world that this story, and I'm looking on my 
on my phone right now has not been reported. If I'm looking under the news tab, the last story, the last update to this was a week ago. Nothing in the recent in the recent days has been said about this story. How does that continue to happen? Yeah, to be honest, it is a big reason why I feel like this is a great time to be independent Mm. because there are so many flaws with the the machine of mainstream media. And it is so easy when you look at affiliations. So Mm -hmm. let's say an ABC affiliate in a small rural town did that story they would be able to upload that to a cloud system that any other ABC affiliate in the entire country could access. And most news stations also are affiliates of national wires. So let's say something like CNN, they could upload it to the CNN wire. And once it gets picked up by CNN, it doesn't matter if you're NBC, ABC, or CBS, you can tap into that if your news station has a subscription to that wire. And so that's how a lot of times you'll end up seeing a story that is reported in like a small town end up going national. And a lot of times if you're able to pull a recording of how it was presented in each market, it yeah. will ironically be the exact same because not only do they upload the footage, but they also upload the script. And so you have anchors all across the country, reporters all across the country who will verbatim regurgitate that report or maybe alter, uh, you know, very slightly. And so it's so easy to your point that, yeah, with with the technology we, we have, a story like that should be discussed. Absolutely. And that would allow also for us as a community to follow whether or not that individual is being held accountable for his horrific actions. And uh, the fact that that information is not put out there dispositions us to take action. Um, And so it it is frustrating. and, And unfortunately, I feel like that is just one example of so many stories that are deserving to be amplified that just don't make the cut. And so when you look at who ultimately makes the decision on whether or not to push those stories, and let's say even if that story got picked up by a wire service um, and became accessible to stations across the country, then you have producers in newsrooms all across the country that have to make a decision on whether or not to include that story in their newscast. But what Mm -hmm. is the percentage of uh, uh, black producers that are in these positions who would feel like a story like that should be prioritized? Right. There's not a ton of black producers. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad Mm -hmm. you said that. And I don't want to cut you off because this actually wraps right back around to what you mentioned earlier about actors, you know, turning roles down. Um, us being in a place uh, not necessarily of producing and making these stories. So my question to you was then going to be how, you know, how do young, young men and women who are aspiring to produce, aspiring, um, you know, to write, how can they open, you know, kick in (laughs) or create opportunities, you know, for themselves so that there are 
more of us in those positions that drive that car. Well, I think it's important to find environments where you can show up as your true authentic self. Mm-hmm. And so if you're able to find that in employment, if you're able to find a station that is, you know, um, accepting a culture that allows you to show up how you are. Right. And w- when I say that, I mean, if you're a man and you have dreads and you want to go on air, you shouldn't have to cut your dreads to go on air. Right. And so it, it, it's tough because now being on the other side of being independent I know how how liberating it is to have the freedom, you know, to to control my image, my presentation and everything. And so it's hard for me to encourage young folks to go run into these white led newsrooms if it means that they're going to have to compromise who they are or Mm. they're going to have to compromise what they believe in. And the same thing for black women. If you have to straighten your hair, you know, for every time you have a live shot, and your hair is going to be damaged, is that the best thing for you? Or mm-hmm. does the 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 uh, sacrifice uh, outweigh the benefit of being in, in those situations? Or can you find a Black-led organization that will allow you to show up exactly who you are, that doesn't um, uphold a European, European standard of beauty, Can you Mm -hmm. find that if you can find a space where you can show up and you can use your voice and you can tell our stories without being silenced or forced to fit in a box that contradicts who you are, man, go for it. If you also have the tenacity and the uh, fortitude to be able to be in environments that force you to fit in a box and you can, you know, run the race and climb the ladder and get to a place where you're able to change it from within. I think that those are all all powerful things, you know, and, and for some young folks, Tyler Perry said it best. If they won't give you a seat at the table, make your own, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive business and there is no one right way to do this work. Um, but I, I would just say it is so important to have a support system, a community of people, um, because being a journalist is a very, or even being a writer, being in this industry is, is a very unique career. And so it's so important to have mentors who can help guide you, who can be there when you need to vent. And mm-hmm. you need to know how do I be diplomatic in this situation so that I can keep my job and still be, you know, impactful and use my voice. Wow. I think um, <laughs> uh, I think Nakia and I both kind of understand what that's like being being therapist um, there, with there not being many black therapists. Um we're always having to make sure that our people are taken care of, that there's yes. uh, cultural competency, that we are within our code of ethics, you know, when we're having um, certain discussions or when we're actually in the therapy room, but not, you know, but not silencing the voices and the, and the hurt and the healing of people that look like us. And so, I think, you know, we probably, when I say we, I do mean the collective, we probably at some level have to do that on a daily basis, 
But that piece that you talk about, Georgia, about why you went independent, right? So that you had you didn't have to have any level of censorship um, around the work that you were doing. Can you talk more about how you made that decision or if you can share what brought you to that place? Yes. Well, well let's just say I made that decision after they pushed me out. Mm. And so I was a full-time anchor at an NBC affiliate and uh, ratings were great. I was nominated for an Emmy, um, you know, it back in my home state after working in another market. And then also in addition to uh, co-anchoring the morning news, I produced the news newscast and then uh, solo anchored that newscast as well. And uh, despite my contributions and despite being one of only three black people in, in the station, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give me maternity leave. And so I, with my middle daughter, I gave birth 11 months into my contract at, at that station. And I was told that in order to be eligible for a maternity leave under federal law, you have to work for a company for 12 months. And so I was legally terminated. I was legally wow. fired at nine months pregnant. And I had an option at that point to, you know, because I, I was fired, I wasn't under contract anymore. So I could go work anywhere. And I, I try to be optimistic about it. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, it's cool. I'll just go get a job in a market I, I really want to be in, which is my hometown. And um, across the board, you know, once you're terminated like that, it it kind of leaves a stain. And so um, I was told, oh, you know, you don't have enough experience and we just think that, you know, you need to work in like one more market before working in this market. And that was kind of hard to accept because at that point I had already been in the industry for 10 or 12 years and had two Emmy nominations. So one even before the last job. So it just, it didn't make sense to me. Um, and so at that point, for family reasons, I had to stay here. And I, I did get other job offers back in the South where you see more Black men and women on TV than you mm-hmm. do up here. Mm. And so I, I could have left, but for family reasons and having small children, it made most sense to stay where we had a support system. Mm-hmm. Right. So I could either at that time go and get a regular nine to five or figure out another pathway to continue t- doing this work. And so what we saw happen to George Floyd was a culmination of so many different things, you know, that's way deeper than just that one officer putting his knee on George Floyd's neck in the state of Minnesota. The 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 systematic racism is so built into the fabric of this community. I mean, this is the fourth worst place for black people to live. Because the white folks are exceeding national standards in healthcare, education, wealth, home ownership, any facet or industry of life, you name it. And black folks are performing exceedingly below the national average. And so that huge disparity is the fourth worst in the entire country. 
despite this being one of the wealthiest states. So what happened to me is not an isolated experience. And so when you know that for me as a storyteller, I was like, you know what? I don't need permission to tell the stories of my community. And so I just got out here and I just started doing the work. I had to hustle up enough money to get equipment because, of Mm -hmm. course, when you work for stations, they provide that to you. And once I got over that hurdle, you know, I, I just unapologetically got out in the community and just started telling the stories that I would have been you know, trying to tell on the five o'clock newscast. And the interesting thing was the tide turned after I interviewed attorney Benjamin Crump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the only journalist in this market who has done a sit down one-on-one interview with him. And so after that interview aired, at all the stations reached out, you should reapply. (laughs) But why? Why should I reapply? Because let's be honest, would you all have even allowed me to tell this story had I been working for you? Right. That part. And then now yeah. tapping into the, the freedom to be able to decide what I do at 9 a.m., whether that's prioritize my health and go to the gym, take my kids to the park, go interview somebody or yeah. help my husband with his business. I have been able to generate more revenue for me and my family in the six, six months since I registered, like legitimately registered my business, mm-hmm. then what I would have been able. So I've made four times the amount of money than what I would have made in a whole year at my highest paying job. Wow. Four times that amount. Mm. So at this point, it's like it doesn't even benefit me in any way. Right. And not not even now we're not we're not even talking about the the ownership uh, aspect of this. So let's say the money was right and you guys want me to come and you agree to allow me to let me wear my hair curly. Uh-huh. I was going <laughs> to you know, ask you agree about to that. allow. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You allow me <laughs> to wear my hair curly and you pay me well. Guess what? Guess what? I'm sacrificing then yeah. I'm sacrificing the legacy and the power to be able to archive our stories yeah. because for whatever price they, you know, offer me, I then will never own the rights to any of the work that I produce while I am working for them. And I would be uh, unable to work for anybody else while I'm working for them. So I put a ceiling over my head of how much money I can earn. Mm. And the reason why ownership is so problem, it's like a, a real issue in media. And, and I'm surprised, like, it seems like no one's talking about it. Remember Prince, when Prince came out, he had slave on the side of his face. I do. Changed his name to an unpronounceable uh-huh. symbol. He was talking about the, the ownership of his work and how these record labels are pimping out artists. And for whatever fee, then they own your masters and they own everything. And it disposition, dispositions you. The same exact thing is happening in media. Didn't Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle recently did that. Yep, he sure did. And, and, you know, the the thing is, if I think we're in a pandemic. So if I'm going out, I'm doing interviews, I'm getting people in my community who know me and trust me to be vulnerable on camera. You know, I'm doing all of this legwork and then you own my intellectual property. That means in 20 years, two things. You could either delete it Mm. 
you don't you don't have to pay to archive it. If you don't think our stories are important, why should you preserve them? Think Mm. about what that means to our history. Think about how that impacts history in 20 years when someone wants to go back and look at an archive of what happened. If these white led organizations decide that they don't want to archive our stories, if they think that the I have a dream speech wasn't powerful enough and they delete it, then what happens when that's erased from our history? So do you think about the the historical implications that that has when we don't own our stories. And then the second thing is the economic impact that that has. So for me in 20 years, when I got wrinkles and, you know, they don't want me to be leading their newscast no more. They want the next young thing that is mm-hmm. popping. Mm-hmm. So I'm left kicked to the curb and I don't have income anymore. Now, if I had been independent and I retained the rights to my work, I could produce a documentary to reflect on everything that happened. And you don't know how big and yeah, maybe it could be a small thing. But what if that blew up? What if that had the potential to earn my family, you know, for generations, millions? Right. I'm waiving my right to do that when I sign their contracts. They own the work. They get to do the documentary. They get the royalties. And in 20 years, just because I went and I filmed the whole thing, I don't get nothing Mm. because I signed the contract. Wow. You know, I hope our listeners are understanding this very concept on so many levels, um, whether it be uh, the intellectual property that George is talking about, whether it's, um, you know, in the media your likeness, your music, your artwork, you know, all of those things, it it matters. And it matters that we are savvy in the way that Georgia is highlighting so that we can have the legacy that she described so well. Mm. Wow. So, um, so Georgia, is there anything that you want people to understand, want people to take action on in being able to influence, improve, or change uh, the narrative or changing the narrative? You know, I would say it's just important to support Black-led, Black-owned media entities. Uh, read, Read the small community Black-owned newspaper Uh, Follow them on Facebook. Check there first. When you see a big story come out, yeah, you might see it break through one of the huge affiliates. That's cool. But I mean, before you share their post, just go go check some of the black owned media networks, you know, and, and see, did they post anything about it? And if they posted something about it, just share theirs. Mm -hmm. I mean, just even a share. It costs you nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so if we can just get in the mind frame of supporting black owned media the same way we're in the mind frame of supporting black owned beauty shops and black owned uh, retail shops and black owned gyms. And, you know, we're we're in the mindset, I feel like, as a community to support black owned businesses when it comes to uh, buying some type of a, a tangible product. Let's take that same mindset and transfer it to black owned media companies, but uh, independent black journalists. Uh, how many do you follow? 
You know, how many do you know? And mm-hmm. there, there are a ton of us out here. And so those small things that cost you nothing but a little bit of time and effort, man, they, they can, they can really change the game. Um, and if everybody did that, man, we could truly compete with these huge media outlets. Thank you. Um, I'm so appreciative of one, you giving us your time today, you sharing um, some very uh, intimate parts of your own journey uh, as a journalist uh, and your experiences in order to help us. Cause I, now I'm, you know, I'm motivated. I'm not a journalist, right. But I'm motivated to move towards that same level of freedom and liberty in the way that I present in the world. Yes. Um, because it does, it, it influences the whole. Mm-hmm. So, so I am appreciative of that. And then also, I think, you know, for us on the outside of, you know, just kind of what we see and things being portrayed in that machine that you talked about. Now I'm looking at things a little differently, right? I was already skeptical before, but you really shed light on some things that we need to be, t- be paying attention to as a people to things that have our images and stories in them. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm definitely for- going to be sharing, uh, being paying, paying better attention to the credit. Just because <laughs> oh, yeah. That. Like I want to, you know, I was mindful and to a certain level, but mm-hmm. I'm really going to start Googling some of these names and seeing who, who these people really are. Absolutely. Well, and thank you ladies for allowing me to, uh, just share my experience and uh, my expertise on your platform. I love what you both are doing and uh, wish you both tremendous success. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure yeah. for our listeners. We are going to share um, down in this description. Uh, if you need to contact, follow, share, um, if you want to see some of the stories and the upcoming projects that Georgia is working on, if you want to take a look at her work, Um, just uh, more information about uh, her, her efforts. That is in the description. Click, like, share, follow her. Um, Any stories that you feel may be helpful or need to be told, I'm sure she is more than welcome, welcoming uh, that information as well. So Georgia, again, thank you so much for giving us your time and during Women's History Month, because sis, you are making history yes thank you i'm calling her hurricane georgia (laughs) 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 it has been a pleasure Uh, nakia do you have anything that you want to leave the people with no i think um everything was said i just you know i'm always uh one who likes to really reinforce us being accountable and us really being um you know policing our own communities you know what I'm yeah. saying? So, awesome. uh, yeah, definitely accountability, um, considering what uh, Georgia said to us today, really keeping that in mind when we're um, viewing media and how we're kind of moving, um, moving forward. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, listeners, that was Georgia Fort, Emmy nominated, twice Emmy nominated, journalist and independent uh I don't even want to call it like history maker, like mover, shaker, change. Like 
I am so motivated. Like if you all have any questions, please reach out to her, please support. And this has been another episode of Down to the White Meat, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. 